QUT acknowledges the Turrbal and Yugara as the First Nations owners of the lands where QUT now stands. We pay respects to their elders, laws, customs and creation spirits. We recognise that these lands have always been places of teaching, research and learning. QUT acknowledges the important role Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people play within the QUT community. And here at How To Academia, we also acknowledge that these lands have never been ceded. Welcome to How To Academia. Leaving high school and joining the world of uni can be a weird and difficult time. On this podcast, we talk to our friends, students and academics to find out how they went about the process of developing professional skills, dealing with challenges and generally navigating the gooey mess of being a human in the academic world. Our guest this episode is Ingrid Gonzalez. Ingrid is a PhD candidate at QUT's School of Justice. Her research is on youth participation in politics with a focus on youth-led social movements in Ecuador. In this episode, Ingrid and Jody discuss the unique challenges of being an international student, as well as some of the cultural differences between Ecuador and Australia, including the education and job market, social and political issues, safety on the streets, and of course, the food. Just a brief note, at one point Ingrid mentions meeting a woman named Helen, for context, this is Dr. Helen Behrens. She's a DECRA fellow and lecturer at QUT's School of Justice. Her research focuses on the role of children and youth in peace and conflict, as well as peace building and international governance more generally. I know this is a spoiler, but since it's not mentioned in the episode, Helen is now Ingrid's PhD supervisor. Without any further ado, Ingrid Gonzalez. <laughs> So, welcome to How To Academia. Who the heck are you? I'm Ingrid. I'm from Ecuador. I've been here in Australia for almost seven years. I came here to do a master's degree in international relations. Uh, and then ended up working for a couple of yeah, years in a not-for-profit in Melbourne. And then I had the opportunity to actually start doing a PhD a year and a half ago. Why decide to study in Australia? Well, that's an interesting story. <laughs> Australia was never in my radar, to be honest. When I was completing my bachelor's degree in Ecuador, I really just wanted to go overseas for, you know, just getting a master's degree because that's the best or easiest way to get a job back in Ecuador and I think especially in Latin America. So um, I pretty much found a friend of mine on Instagram posting photos in Australia with kangaroos and everything and, <laughs> and I messaged her and I pretty much kind of asked her, how did you end up there? Like, what are you doing there? And then she said like, oh, you know, I am here studying a master's degree, Australia is such a wonderful country, blah, 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 and all of this. And I was like, hey, like, how did you get help for applying there? I never thought about it. And then she sent me to a student agency to help me with all the application process and like to explain a little bit about the life in Australia, how to apply, scholarship, you know, scholarship opportunities and everything. So I pretty much follow what she suggested and I went and visited this student agency and they provided me all the information and well, Australia sounded fantastic and an amazing country and I was like, why not? I had, I could say like an intermediate level of English. I was like, yeah, I can survive in terms of language skills. <laughs> so I'll definitely be keen to go there, why not? And yeah, and I started the whole process for coming here, yeah. What was your first degree in? So my first degree is in economics. 
which it was interesting because it, my economics degree was kind of a rush decision towards the end in my high school <laughs> in terms of, oh, you need to know what you, you want to be in the future. And I was like, all right, doing all these tests that they, you know, kind of guide you to see whether you're inclining towards, I don't know, like engineering or social sciences and all of that. And everything seemed to to be directing me to social science and economics. I was like, all right, why not? So I ended up doing that and studying economics which I kind of enjoyed, but at the end of my degree, I found out that I was more interested in the public policy area rather than me working in a lot of, you know, econometrics, statistics, and doing models and all of that. I like more to get the data, but then me trying to see how we can improve public policy and all of that. So yeah, like that's what what I did. And one of the reasons why I also tried to start working at the same time while I was studying my bachelor's in the government. So that's how I made the decision, all right, I want to get opportunities. So while I was doing my bachelor's, I was also working for the government. What were you doing for the government? So in the government, I worked for a couple of years at the National Electoral Council in the International Affairs Department. So we were in charge of working on MOUs and trying to get uh, some electoral authorities coming to Ecuador and provide some type of workshops that could improve our electoral processes and the other way around too. So what can we do as Ecuador for other countries to improve their systems or like the electoral processes or to get more people? Like how, how can we do all these electoral processes better pretty much? So um, I had to deal a lot with international authorities. I was very, very like happy to actually be part of the team that organized the first international electoral observation process in 2013 where I know like pretty well people that know about Latin America that was pretty much the year that Rafael Correa pretty much started being the president in Ecuador that's when we were they were calling the pink tide because he was like he was calling this as the 21st uh, socialism 21st century socialism so um, yeah, it was it was such a wonderful experience. We had around 500 international authorities coming from all over the world, pretty much deploying missions to all the cities for them to actually, you know, verify how our processes were working mm-hmm. and doing all these accountability reports. And of course, back back then, I think I was like 21 years old. So it was actually a very interesting, <laughs> interesting experience because I was let's say a baby, whereas all these electoral authorities, you know, we can call them as adults, pretty much kind of saying like, oh, are you organizing all of these? And you know, you were like, yeah, I'm doing all of this. And I remember I was in the buses studying and everything, but it was such a wonderful experience. So I did that for two years. Then I finished my work over there because there were changes in authorities and because, yeah, public officials, public servants cannot work more than two years in the same position. They want to like rotate positions so that you get more skills within like the whole institution. But that's when I actually uh, needed to spend more time working on my thesis because mm. we don't have things like honors in Ecuador. Like you have four years degrees and your fourth year is pretty much doing a thesis. So um, I spent that time trying to finish my thesis. And then after I submitted my thesis for three months, I actually work in the um, Secretary of Planning and Development, which was pretty much more in charge of analyzing whether contracts were feasible to 
accomplish the goals that the government had in that moment. So we were approving if they wanted to build the schools or if they wanted to build new hospitals. We had a lot of people actually submitting applications of projects, verify whether they were okay, the environmental impacts, social impacts, and all of this. So yeah, that's. I worked over there for almost like probably I think it was five months, and that was exactly before coming here to Australia. What's the differences between living and working in Ecuador and living and working in Australia? Well, there are big differences, <laughs> massive difference. So, well, of course, I believe that maybe that's the difference of of being like you know a developed and a developing country. Like it's it's bad, or oh, I don't like always like splitting like that. But that's how it is. So, um, in Ecuador, people pretty much want to get professional jobs. Professional jobs are highly valued, not only in terms of money, but also culturally. So people do not tend to work too much in hospitality. Unfortunately, the people working in hospitality or in trade as laborers are people that pretty much don't have enough financial resources to, I don't know, get a degree or to study because the conditions doesn't allow you to do that. Besides, they don't pay well, because I believe that if they were well paid, probably more people would be interested in doing that. So um, as soon as you are studying your degree, all the people that are studying at the same time, they really want to get a professional job. And the only way to get a professional job in Ecuador is pretty much getting degrees. Mm. So you will find a lot of very qualified people back in Ecuador with master's degrees, two, three master's degrees. PhDs were not very popular until recently <laughs> when they changed kind of a little bit of like the education system and they decided that they want to have more PhDs. But there are a lot of people actually doing like three master's degrees, two master's degrees. So for example, in my case, while I was doing my bachelor in economics, I was also doing a bachelor in education. Cool. So I was also like, you know, doing all of these and that's why people are highly like qualified. And that's why I also had my work experience. A lot of people, well, friends of mine here in Australia, they were surprised. How did you actually have two degrees and at the same time you have two years work experience mm-hmm. in Ecuador? But that's how like the whole environment works. So you find ways to actually get into that point because it's very competitive all the time. When I came here in Australia, then it was totally different because here people pretty much don't judge you. I say like judge you because in Ecuador, if you would be, you know, coming from middle class family and you will be doing cleaning jobs, that wouldn't be looked as something like kind of good. Like, what are you doing that kind of job? Whereas in here, when I came, uh, a lot of international students were working in, you know, cafes, restaurants, some, some others like doing cleaning jobs and all of that. They were very well paid. So like, why not? So when I came here, it was also very interested that you had all these, you know, certificates on different things. You can go to a TAFE and then that's it. You don't need anything more. Like there's not that pressure of, oh, I need to do like a four-year degree to get a, a good job or anything. Like you can have a good life just with a TAFE or certificate. So um, when I came here, then of course I had to start from zero. I started working uh, in hospitality. I ended up doing cleaning jobs. I ended up selling cleaning wax in petrol stations. That pretty much after two weeks of talking to people and trying to sell them products, I lost my voice. <laughs> and I was like, <laughs> and I yeah, I ended up doing a lot of things. Um, I ended up working in a small family business company that sells chemicals and laboratory equipment, which actually, you know, at the, at the beginning I was like, why am I doing this? Is this all for money? It's just because I need to pay my uni fees. But at the end of the day, I was very grateful of all those experiences during the two years that I was here doing my master's degree 
because I got those skills that somehow made me very unique for the position that I got after finishing my master's degree, where that's when I actually moved to Melbourne to start working as an office coordinator for the Australian Institute of International Affairs for the Victoria branch. And it was just because of these very unique skills that I acquired during these, let's say, very kind of, not informal jobs, but very casual jobs. Mm. So, um, yeah, like, at the beginning, I might have been kind of not regretting, but it was me getting out of my comfort zone. But I learned how to see the positive things of all of Mm. these and how that could help me not only personally, but also professionally. And I know that it was not something easy. It was like probably a process of maybe a year and a year and a half of me just questioning whether I made the right decision or not when I came here to Australia. And it was more because all my work experience in Ecuador was not as valued as it, as it was, you know, back then here in Australia, if I didn't have enough work experience here, they wouldn't kind of value it. I don't know, maybe because, I don't know if it was language, I don't know because things were different within companies or the culture is different, I'm just not sure, but many of those were shot because of that and also because of my student visa situation. (laughs) I'm going to throw out there and say maybe it's racism? Yeah. Yeah, it could be because I had some experience as well, as I was telling you, like even just for simple jobs, kind of going there, asking just in in a store in the city, which I always say I will never forget this man. But it was me going with my CV, you know, waking up very early so that I cannot interrupt the working hours and just being like, hey, I would like to apply in this store, which was actually they made fresh juice. And I was like super excited. I was like, oh, my God, I would love to work there very motivated and then he was like oh where are you from and I was like from Ecuador and he just pretty much looked at me and was like oh you know what all the Colombians all the Latins are cleaning that in that building and I feel really really bad and because I was just very new here I to be honest it just like pretty much demotivated me a lot yeah. a lot and discouraged me and I'm like a very extrovert person it kind of bring me like brought me in and I just I was afraid of actually keep trying to find jobs because I just didn't want to have that attitude anymore. So yeah, I could say that it could be a form of racism. Like you you have to work harder than anyone else in here if you want to get an opportunity. Like it's, yeah, like now that you're making me think about it. <laughs> it's actually, yeah, like, you know, all the times you are over preparing yourself for anything yeah. because you just wanted to show that that you can, that you have the skills, that, yeah. I mean, discrimination is a thing, and particularly with, I guess, perceptions around Latin America and developing nations, and I think the this notion of devaluing particular skill sets Mm -hmm. and particular types of education. So you've done your master's degree, you've got this great job in Melbourne. Was it a great job? Yeah, it was actually a great job. I had a lot of opportunities to to actually meet very interested people. And I'm pretty sure that if I would have stayed over there, probably I would have gotten to like a next level in terms of my professional career. Because to be honest, the PhD was a surprise to me. <laughs> yeah, tell me how that so, happened. So in terms of the PhD, when I finished my master's degree, I didn't do a thesis at the end, but I took this component during my last semester where I actually had to write like a kind of a mini thesis or monograph because I didn't want to close my doors for any opportunity in the future. 
So when I finished my master's degree, I was just unsure of a specific topic that I would be like, all right, I'm gonna put my three years or four years just to do that research. So um, when I was finishing almost my two years working in Melbourne, my visa was also expiring at the same time. COVID started. Mm. So um, my partner pretty much wanted to do a PhD since he finished his master's degree because he also finished his master's degree at UQ and he's also Ecuadorian, but he's more in the data science field. So he was looking for a PhD like no one else in this world. And I don't know if we should call this a miracle or what, but when we were about to get our ticket flights to go back to Ecuador, because we kind of tried to do all that we could for staying here and apply for the the residency. We really wanted to stay here after four years. It was like, all right, we we really like this country and everything. He applied to three universities and the three of them were like, yeah, you're welcome, but you have to pay your fees. And like, both of us were like, no way, we pay our master's degrees already. We, we cannot afford this anymore. And we were like, all right, maybe, you know, it's not meant to be in here. Maybe we need to go back to Ecuador and it's fine. Like, you know, that's how we were. But coincidentally, when we were just getting, trying to get this ticket flight to Ecuador, he receives an email from one of the professors that he contacted to pretty much ask him whether he was interested to give it another try at the same university, that there were some funds for him to apply. He applied and within a week he received a scholarship at QUT because now he's also QUT. And when that happened, it was like, all right, so we're staying for more time here in Australia. And I was like, well, you know, things happen for a reason. And through my job in Melbourne, because I had a lot of networking opportunities, I had the opportunity to actually work and collaborate with other academics there. I met a professor from uh, Monash University and um, I remember that we had this very good chemistry at the same time because she did her research in Colombia. So she had all this Latin culture thing that when we we met each other, we just had really good chats. And I remember that, well, after seeing my, my partner having this opportunity, I was like, maybe it's time to probably consider this. So I messaged, yeah, like this academic in Monash and I was like, hey, you know, like I've, I'm just wondering like how do we apply for PhDs? This is the, my, my areas of interest and all of this. And exactly at that time, she, she tagged me on a tweet. And to be honest, I was not a Twitter user at all. I had a Twitter account, but I was not using it. So when I was like pretty much tagged on a tweet, I was like, how do I even read this on my phone? And she tagged me in a tweet uh, from Helen. So I was like, it was Helen looking for people interested in doing a PhD with her. So I was like, I was very surprised because Helen was at QUT. My partner got his scholarship at QUT at the same time. And I was like, oh, maybe this is a sign. I always had like this 50%, you know, 50-50, should I do my research? 50, should I just stay in the industry? And I was like, well, I'll just give it a try, you Mm. know? So I remember that we just had a meeting with Helen through a video call and it was like, all right, we like, like Helen was trying to find a topic that you're very interested on. And I always knew that I wanted to do something in Latin America. Probably that one get me all my professional opportunities later on, but I really want to do that because I believe that I could be a bridge on in terms of language and in terms of people in the academia and also like the civil society to know more about Latin America. 
And uh, and I was like, all right. I had two weeks to write a research proposal. Helen was uh, helping me with Caitlin as well. We wrote the proposal and I submitted the whole application. And then it was fingers crossed. And after a month, I also received the scholarship for doing the PhD here. So of course, when I received the scholarship, to be honest, I had a mix of emotions. I was super excited, but at the same time, I was very afraid. I was like, what I'm getting into, like a three years PhD research, English, you're not gonna get out, you're not gonna get out of this. Like, <laughs> and it was, it was very, very interesting. I've never felt like that. I even cry. I was like, I was some at some point, I even blamed my partner. I was like, this is because of you. <laughs> <laughs> this is because of you. But no, so. Um, yeah, I think it was hard probably to me to accept that something that good happened to me, considering how hard it has been to me for getting something that I didn't, as I said, I didn't even put any effort. I just like contacted Helen, first person, and it was not because I was searching for her, it was because someone kind of said, look, like I know this person, she's looking for PhD students, and I know you, I work with you, and I think you will be something very capable. And then I saw my partner like applying to many universities, contacting many people, and actually receiving like no rejections, but no scholarship, no scholarship, no scholarship. So I believe that when I got it, to me it was just so hard to believe it. Like kind of like it has caused me a lot to get where I'm here. That it's just so hard to receive this that easily. Well, I say easily, but of course during those two weeks of writing that research proposal was not easy. <laughs> But yeah, so that's how I ended up doing my PhD, which to be honest, I was also glad to come back to Brisbane. I had friends here. Mm. I knew how to move around. So it was not somewhere new because when I moved to Melbourne, it was actually it was hard to start making friends. I didn't have the university kind of environment where I meet other people. I had to Google Ecuadorians in Melbourne to actually find my friends. <laughs> and the weather is awful in Melbourne. I mean, let's be yeah, honest, Brisbane climate is much better. But it's it's better, but I still prefer Melbourne's weather, to be honest. <laughs> really? But it's because I'm, I'm from the capital city in Ecuador, and that's like the highland region. Uh, okay. So it's pretty much like, yeah, like I could say like Melbourne, like it's it's like changing like all the time. It could be very sunny <laughs> and in a matter of seconds, it's like super cold. Those are not the things I love. Tell me about your <laughs> research. So, well, my research is about uh, youth's political participation. So more specifically, I'm trying to understand how youth engage in intergenerational dialogue within youth-led social movements in Latin America. I believe that uh, social movements in Latin America, especially the ones that are led by young people, actually have the great potential to create social and political change by using all like these intergenerational connections that they have. So it's not that this is like a young people, uh, young people's issue or an adult's issue. It's pretty much they collaborate with each other, and maybe that's the reason why they have more attention from the government even though the government doesn't do or like do not kind of address the issues that they are demanding but somehow like they have these components that one uh, pretty much rejects or challenges this perception of youth's political apathy and at the same time it also shows the potential that young people have to create change not only just through mobilizing informally, but how also young people can use other kind of, let's call it traditional tools to get what they want. So the case that I'm studying specifically, which is Yasunidos, 
they actually use a form of direct democracy. So they collected signatures to call for a national referendum to protect one of the national parks, uh, the Yasuni National Park in Ecuador, which is something very unique because you don't get to hear that, or I haven't seen here in Australia or any other country where they actually young people try to somehow partner with other collectives or even adults and other people to use all the constitutional rights to kind of de demand the government to do something about mm -hmm. the issues. So yeah, I'm kind of trying to understand how that, that work and how that impacts youth political participation and hopefully they can be a great example for other you know, social movements around the world to learn how to do it and how to better address. And also at the same time, kind of once again highlight the important role that young people play in politics at the moment. What do you think the key differences are in young people politically in Latin America and young people politically in Australia? That's a really good question and a hard question. <laughs> um, well, I, I first have to say something which it kind of comes from me considering myself still a young person. And, and I believe that the difference are rooted within the lifestyle that people have in both countries. So as I was telling you at the very beginning of the experiences of you know working here in Australia and working in Ecuador, the issues are very different. And issues are relative to how they live in their home country. So for example, here you have poverty, but your poverty is totally different to the poverty that we actually experience in Ecuador. So when I'm here and I see, for example, campaigns asking for you know funds for buying iPads for students to me that's in my head is like I'm not saying that this doesn't exist I'm like trying to be respectful with this but like to me it's like all right you said that here poverty is not having an iPad whereas in Ecuador poverty is actually not even have book a simple book so that kind of makes young people to act differently and probably have a different connection emotionally in the way that they act politically. Because the suffering, or not suffering, but maybe the issues that they have to deal with and the justice that they have to deal with, not only just now, but this has been pretty much across generations. Mm. All like the economic, social context, political context hasn't improved at all for many years. And I could blame this to colonialism probably pretty much because that's the reason why we are how we are in Ecuador. And all of that has been just pretty much, you know, inherited across generations as well. Like if your family unfortunately didn't have access to education, most of the kids or the children won't have access to education. So this is something that keeps happening. And I believe that because of all that suffering and all the emotional and all the issues and the struggles that they have to actually have a decent life and access to simple and basic services, people react in different ways. And somehow they have even like more confrontation with the government. Mm. Here, maybe because the issues are not that big, but again, I'm saying this because it's relative. Probably people are used to different lifestyles, and of course, like issues are experienced differently than what I'm saying in, in in Ecuador, and I'm very aware of that. Like, I see how much here is the annual salary is, like probably what I would have been doing in five years in Ecuador working in the government. So the difference is that big, and that's the reason why I believe here, for example, young people 
they have been actually racing and for example the schools for a strike that's a very great example as well like they're very political they have a lot of a lot of potential to create change but i feel that probably what they don't have is that emotional connection that i was saying from ecuador I don't, I don't want to use this word, but I don't feel like they are like that outraged as they are in Ecuador. But I don't mean in a way of, oh, we're going to be like, you know, burning like palaces or and all of that. It's just the way and the strength that they get from all that suffering to actually trying to find a way. We're going to make change this. Like We're not going to wait or hold like our hands and just be outside, protest and wait for them to do the changes. And that's why, for example, this specific case that I'm looking at is very interesting because they are not just only mobilizing and protesting, they're actually trying to find even like constitutional ways to make that change so that the government doesn't have any more like kind of, oh, this is, this is like what, like they are not criminalizing them, like you are not kids anymore, this is not something that matters, is because they're actually taking all that potential in a way that they can fight back to the government and be like, you know, you need to fight for us. You don't need to fight for you filling your pockets with money. Mm. A lot of uh, students and probably just a lot of people generally won't understand what life is like in Latin America. We'll have, I guess, kind of maybe some broad scale ideas about fairly ridiculously stereotypical (laughs) drugs, violence, like. Well, yeah. Pablo Escobar (laughs) (laughs) mentioning all the Colombians and they also have a perception that everyone is Colombian (laughs) (laughs) so tell us then I see in you there is this there is this passion and there is this drive and it comes from wanting to be better but what is it that I guess is politically important for you as an Ecuadorian well to be honest that's a very hard question too but (laughs) Like, People say that a lot about the questions I ask. Like, hard questions. So, to me, it's actually, how can I say these? Like, well, first, I believe that also, like, the Australians here are also very passionate. But probably the degree on how they do things maybe is different because of the different experiences that they might have. So, for example, so far while I'm here, I've been seeing a lot of climate justice mm. activism, which is big. and. And honestly, it's very impressive. And that will be another interesting thing to compare with what's happening in Ecuador in terms of, well, not in Ecuador, but in Latin America, in terms of climate justice activism too. But I believe that, you know, I, like, how can I, to me, it's very important to me because somehow this kind of reveals how governments haven't been actually addressing the issues, not only just from young people, but from the civil society itself. There is a lack of attention on behalf of the government to all these issues that are being raised, whether it's here in Australia, whether it's in Latin America, whether it's in Europe. Like, why do we need to get to this point where people need to be outside on the streets protesting or even in in other ways of, you know, doing politics because that's not only the only ways of doing politics. We have people actually, you know, stop buying things that are unethically Mm. uh, produced. So this is just like the perfect opportunity to kind of being like, hey, government's attention, like this been happening for years. Why haven't we been doing something? Most of the governments are being elected by the people. Are these governments actually representing the people? Mm -hmm. Are they really doing what they need? I know it's impossible to kind of 
do or or pretty much yeah do what all the people want or need but at least are you looking at it in a like a broad perspective how are we working for our people now for our young people if young people are now like pretty much you know trying to get involved in politics it's pretty much this been this this has been something happening for years and because they're growing up in a context with is no like is no longer feasible for even them to think about a, a stable future. So we go into this point that you know governments need to act, and I could definitely see that like you know in Ecuador, and I'm pretty sure in here, young people through history have been actually playing a great role in politics, and it's been just the discourse used from media and the political elites that have been uncovering that and pretty much silencing the fact that young people have mm. been always trying to do all like these changes and try to demand from governments to do something about it. So this is another point of how youth agency have been, you know, somehow invisible. But it's not that it has been invisible. This is pretty much the discourse from governments trying to silence that voice, trying to not demonstrate the fact that young people have the power, they have the capacity, they have the skills to create change. And just because they think that they are immature, because they lack the skills, because they are growing up and they don't have the experience, they believe that they don't have the capacity to think in different ways or to be affected by the different issues that are happening right now. Do you think there's different risks for young people that are politically active in Latin America as opposed to in Australia? So I think that the biggest risk is actually that people have been followed by the political elites, that they don't like the type of activism that they are doing. So young people pretty much in Ecuador have to do with this. And I'm pretty sure in Latin America as well. If people know a little bit about history in Latin America, even during the dictatorships back in the 70s, there were a lot of disappearances of people. And that's part because of political repression. So unfortunately, those type of practices still happen in Latin America. It's not that they stop. Like mm -hmm. pretty much young people need to be very careful who they work with, how they work, who they partner with, how they communicate with people, and uh, pretty much even like the way how they frame the issues and what they want to say. Because they have all these risks the whole time of the human rights being violated mm. in all different types of, you know. I haven't seen that much here in Australia, thankfully. Mm. Uh, unless it has been happening, but I haven't been aware or I haven't seen in the news or papers. But it's something that I, even when I'm reading like papers or work, I don't see that going on. But when I'm actually doing all the readings in Latin America, it's something that I found in every single paper of how there's a lot of political repression, of how young people, they've been even threatened by political elites. Uh, as, as I was mentioning, disappearances is something that is still happens as well. You know, I, I feel that that's like the biggest risk that Latin American people have at this moment. Oh, well, not at this moment, but across like many years it's been happening and it's not something that has stopped. Probably less, but it's still like a lot. Do you see yourself going back to Ecuador? Yes, I would love to go. I always, as you said, like people have these wonderful views of Latin America or they think Latin America is a different thing. Well, 
I always say that if you go as a tourist, it's a wonderful region. Like, it's beautiful. Living there is hard. Mm. And now that I have the experience of living here in Australia, for many people, it's actually hard to go back to Latin America. And it's just because things like, you know, getting a job, how much you get paid here makes a big difference and how much you have to work back in, in your home countries to get what you get paid. Like, I remember one of the things that kind of struck me the most was the pretty much that I was working in a restaurant in a week and I was doing in a week the same amount of money that I was doing mm. working for the government in one month. Of course, rent is cheaper and living costs are relative again, but still you don't earn as much as you can like, earn here. And, uh, and of course, I believe that the other biggest difference of why I would still prefer Australia having living here is safety. Mm. So, um, of course, when I was in Ecuador, I just grew up with it. Like, you know, you don't walk with your mobile phone or you don't text while you're on the bus. You don't usually like wear a lot of, you know, gold earrings and all these fancy things. You you knew because I grew up like that. So I was already used to that. To me, it was normal to walk while at the same time, like being aware, like all sides, whether someone is following me. And to me, that was normal. And when I came here, I remember the first week, I was walking like that, like looking around, blah, blah, blah. And then someone was like, you don't have to be like that here. Like here is very safe. And I was like, it took me probably like two months to adjust that type of thinking in my head. And um, yeah, like safety is one of like the, I don't know, it's like a precious thing. Like just feeling safe, being able to walk in the street during nighttime, feeling, you know, like knowing that nothing could happen to you. I think that's something very invaluable. and probably one of the reasons that I would definitely like to stay here. But yeah, I, if I if I will go to Ecuador, I definitely will go there to kind of, you know, again, work in politics. What do you miss about Ecuador? <gasps> food. <laughs> Preach, sister, I hear you. Tell me about the food. Like food and, and of course my family. Well, most of Latin American countries are actually very, very diverse. They have a lot of, you know, different dishes. If you ask me of one single dish, is impossible to mention because every single city in Ecuador has, like, different dish. Highland region has different uh, traditional food, coast region different traditional food, Amazon region the same. So, of course, if you're a vegan or vegetarian, you will struggle in Ecuador pretty much. <laughs> You'll be eating a lot of rice and potatoes and plantain. <laughs> but yeah, we we have a lot, we, we kept a lot of the indigenous food, a lot of it. That's our, actually our traditional food. That's why we eat guinea pig. So mm. for people who have guinea pigs as pets, I'm sorry, but <laughs> that's what actually indigenous people used to eat back then. I hear they're delicious. <laughs> they are crunchy. <laughs> They are very crunchy, like they serve it with uh, some potatoes and a kind of a peanut sauce. Uh, not many people like it actually, which okay. is interesting, but I think it's because of the fact of thinking that it's a guinea pig. <laughs> and many people might be like, but that is a rat, like how could you eat it? So that's the reason why not many people like it. But then, yeah, we have like very things like ceviche, which is with prawn and, you know, fish and all like the seafoods. And then it's fascinating because when you go to the Amazon region, then you also find like more a lot from like the indigenous people from the Amazon region. 
where they actually have a lot of food cooked with a lot of you know different plants that you cannot find them in the highland mm. region they even eat like some type of worm that is called chontakuro and they also eat that which i've tried it it's delicious as well so yeah like there there is oh, many things like i i think like the next time i'm going I, I think i always work out really hard before going to ecuador <laughs> because i know that once i get there like i'm eating everything like everything there's so many like yeah so many different dishes that you could have over there for different tastes it's no it's just it's just wonderful i think food is like unfortunately i cannot find any ecuadorian restaurant here most of them are Colombians. They're similar to our food, but not exactly the same. Mm-hmm. We share some things, uh, but yeah, I think I think that's one of the things that I miss the most from from the food, and also the big family gatherings as well, because it's like I believe that Latin America is also kind of conservative as well in many of the things, most likely due to religion. And that's the reason why family is like very important to everyone. And of course, that's why we have like the massive dinners with a lot of family mm. and eating a lot of food. And <laughs> so, yeah. What's been most helpful at uni life? What has been most helpful as an international student? The most helpful as an international student, I believe that probably the biggest like well the most helpful thing as an international student to me has been the fact of getting to know people from different countries it actually broadens your perspective about the world Mm -hmm. and uh, about like the diversity in the world as well pretty much kind of that was in my case personally that kind of helped me to go through my whole master's degree and even now during my phd having the community of people dealing with the same things at the same time and working together and collaboratively. So I, I believe that that has been like the most helpful thing. And through those networks, try to create and find ways not to only support us personally, but also professionally. And that's what even happened during my master's degree. I had great friends that now they know me not only as a person, but also as a professional. And when they need something from me, they try to help me get really good opportunities. Uh, involve me in things that are relevant to me that I uh, and you know in activities that I could also be of 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 good you know like provide valuable input to some projects and all of that so I think that that has been the most helpful thing just having the community and you know helping each other receiving that support as well in terms of you know like the mentoring programs as well in terms of you know how can you do this how to you do your cv well of course i did that like four years ago but especially because cvs were not done especially as we don't do it in ecuador to me that was valuable like i was Mm. like all right i thought the cv was a universal thing (laughs) and no it was not (laughs) So, so like all these tiny tips that of course they helped me back then now i'm used to that but if i wouldn't have that at the very beginning probably i would have a struggle a lot how as an international student do you find those people well part of that is you know getting out of your comfort zone i know not many people probably have the same personality as i have like i love talking to people i need 
I need to be surrounded by people. But I know that many people don't do that. So I think that that's part of, you know, getting out of your comfort zone. If you really want to kind of find a job or even just try to get to know more about the culture, you need to sometimes give the first step and try to talk to people, even if it's really hard. This is not for you only to make friends, but it's actually to also help you build all these, you know, communication skills at the same time. I always believe that, you know, like, especially with English, as a non-English native speaker, to me, I came here and I really just wanted to talk to people that didn't speak Spanish because that was my only way mm. to actually improve. And, you know, it was hard at the beginning. Yes, I had some friends sometimes correcting my English, but that was the only way I learned. And until now, sometimes I made mistakes and I keep learning. But I, I feel that you need to leave aside you know, the fact of being afraid of being scared or even sometimes to be judged because of who you are, or where you come from and just be out there because it's not only you learning from them, but sometimes also they learn from mm. you as well. You are like this kind of, you know, door that will let them in to know a different culture and a different perspective. So, yeah, I, I, I've seen a lot of friends and, and it's interesting because, yeah, I had some like friends that love to talk, love to go out, but other friends that they don't. But I somehow tried to approach them and now like they talk to me, at least they talk to me. And sometimes I don't know if it's just because they see me talking and they see me being like all the time an extrovert, they kind of at least come with me and I'm able to be like, all right, like, you know, like this is my friend, I introduce you to blah, you know, like this is their name and you wanna go out, like talk to each other. But yeah, I think like that's that's the way how you, you do it. It's not hard, like it's not it's not easy actually. It's, it's hard, but I believe that that's like a good challenge. Mm. It's not bad. It's just like you need to make it as something positive in your life. So, How can domestic students better engage with and support international students? I feel that it's... How can I say this? I had a very interesting experience from my master's degree. And just probably be a little bit more aware on the way how you say things to international students because culturally here some things for you might be kind of normal or this would be a joke and um, as people that are non-English native speakers sometimes the joke is not understood so instead of being a joke you actually heard that person mm -hmm. and I talk this from a personal perspective you know like a, for a, from a personal experience where where someone like tried to correct my English in a funny joke way but instead of correcting my English in that funny joke way it really really shut me down I just didn't want to talk anymore I was like I'm doing a lot of effort for being here mm -hmm. and and then when I told this person how I felt about it they told me I was just joking I didn't mean to do this blah 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 I didn't know that I made you feel like that I'm really sorry about it and of course I didn't I didn't knew that so I believe that sometimes is that that tiny touch of how you say things just always keep in mind that the people that come from non-English backgrounds sometimes even the slangs here in Australia which that was another thing like Australian English is a different language <laughs> it, was like, it was like with the slangs like sometimes you use them and just always just keep in mind that for us, it's just hard to start, it's hard to learn all these new things. 
all the tiny slangs, all the jokes and everything. And if you make a joke and the person that is like an international student don't laugh, maybe just think, oh, probably they didn't understand that. Or maybe I should say it in a different way. Or probably I would just let them know that this is how we say here in Australia. So probably like that, you can create all these more engaging communities as well. But I noticed that sometimes like, yeah, people don't actually kind of think of that because for you it's very natural to say your slangs, whereas for mm. us it's not. Or sometimes the way how you say things is not like the subtle way to say it or is not receive it like that. So um, I believe that to me that would have made a difference. And probably that's the reason why most of my friends during my master's degree were international students more than Australian uh, people, like domestic students here. Mm. Do you have a favorite theorist and or theory? Uh, favorite theorist, that's a hard one. There are a lot of theorists. <laughs> What's the favorite piece of academic work that you've read? Ooh. <laughs> Not easier? That's a, that's a broad question. Well, probably because I've been dealing a lot with it and I'm really trying to use that in my research because I feel it's very helpful. There are two, two pieces. They're from Woodman and Wynne, which they're actually Australian youth sociologists. But there's also... Pablo Bomaro and Melina Vasquez, Latin American scholars, that they also do youth sociology stuff. They pretty much understand or conceptualize youth as a generation, which is a very new way of actually understanding youth. And I really like them and I'm engaging a lot with them on the way how they actually try to understand or explain how young people's experiences have changed across generations and how youth cannot be understood as a transitional process. So um, it's just very interesting on the way how they, for example, Woodman and Wynne made their study here in Australia to kind of understand uh, youth subjective experiences of, you know, having access to education, of getting into the labor market. And then uh, Pablo Bomar and Melina Vasquez, they do the same in Latin America, but they're more interested in the political participation bit. So I really like their work, like they, they don't try to kind of measure or put variables. That's why I'm a qualitative researcher. <laughs> because I like the fact that they want to learn from people's experiences yeah. and understand what they think about that. Because I think we can get more meaning and understanding from getting people's experiences rather than us just trying to test a theory <laughs> on objects. Well, for me, they are not objects, they are subjects. <laughs> but, but yeah, so I, I, I think like at the moment I'm very, very passionate with the work of, of well, there are four people. <laughs> but yeah, Woodman and Wynne like, pretty much work together in this piece. And then Pablo Omar and Melina Vasquez, they also like kind of work together a lot collaboratively in youth sociology. What's your top tips for students in general surviving at university? Well, first thing, this helped me a lot. Have a book or some tips for academic writing. I know sometimes it's just basic stuff and you're like, but I've done this in high school. Even to me, uh, it was just very helpful to kind of have like these, you know, tiny bits of pieces of paper. How to do an argument, how to use like, you know, all this stuff and just put it in front of your desk. So <laughs> at any time that you are writing something, just look at it, it's just very helpful. The second thing would be just try to organize yourself 
try to do like you know a daily to do list what you want to do and how you want to do things in my case I am a multitasker but at the same time I'm that type of person that tries to finish an activity and then goes to the other one so I'd rather spend two days writing an essay a good essay and then move on to the next activity so whatever works for you best but try to just have like daily daily I don't know daily activities daily goals that you need to achieve because yeah you might feel that you haven't done anything but once you pretty much see that you've accomplished your daily goals and you feel like no I've been actually working the third thing as a student create your community don't be alone uh, I think that the best conversations happen when you talk to people even if it's about an essay an assignment or even about life it's just good to have that community don't isolate yourself even if you don't like being in a group of more than three people, then just stick to one friend, but always just be with someone and create that, you know, sense even of friendship. It's always good. Then what other tip would I give as a student? Oh, I think that me as being a student, attend to networking, uh, networking events. I always tell this to all international students, if you really want to even like build your career professionally or even if you want to stay in academia, you need to start getting involved in those areas that mm. you, you're looking yourself into. I know it's hard to go to a networking event and then if you go very deep into it, you need to have your pitch and all the stuff to introduce yourself and all of these tips. But I believe that the networking events are a great opportunity for starting to create a network that you want to create in your life and that will help you get what you want mm. during your studies and after your studies. That's how I actually found even my job. And that's how I created a lot of, you know, networks. And the fifth one probably is do not ignore the emails from uni, especially if they come from all the, <laughs> from all like, you know, all these amazing teams that tries to provide you with all, you know, the support, the student support. Again, this might go with the networking part, but I believe that all like, you know, these extra workshops of academic writing, of how to do these, of how to do that, they are actually very helpful. Mm. People think they don't need them, but sometimes you even need to refresh that in your mm. head. And that could make a huge difference in all your work. Like, I used to attend during my master's degree a lot. Even now, I even at the beginning of my PhD, I did again a workshop on academic writing. And that was just for refreshing everything that I had. I remember I went to how to create, how to build your resume, how to do the LinkedIn stuff. All, all the sources like are there. It's just that like sometimes you ignore those emails or you believe they are not important, but I believe that they are, and from my experience, they help me a lot for where I'm now. I love that. Don't ignore your emails. That is like, I think, just stellar life advice. Don't ignore your emails. <laughs> Please. Flag them if you don't want to read them there. Like, that specific <laughs> moment, but don't ignore them. Yeah, like... It's just, I know that we, yeah, we, nowadays, even, like, everyone just by email everything, and we ignore, but I feel that if something that you're really interested on, and you feel that it's going to help you, then just don't ignore it, and just try to do it, and, mm. you know, try to make some times for those tiny things that you will, you think they're tiny, but then in the future, they make a big difference. Mm. That's what happened to me. That's the way how I actually ended up having my resume done. That's how I improved it in my LinkedIn and all this stuff and it's just through all these tiny things that most of the people actually don't make use of 
Oh, and maybe the last one, which I remember now, another one, and this one, I think I've been giving this to all my friends, like even international domestic students. Universities usually have a lot of departments that gives you, you know, or provides you with information about different internships and opportunities that you could, that you, you can do during your studies. And uh, this happens to me, for example, at, at UQ. I didn't know that there was a Latin American embassies uh, program internship and just by pretty much browsing on, at UQ's website I ended up finding this opportunity I sent them an email I'll apply to it and they pretty much supported me financially to go to do a month in Canberra mm -hmm. for an internship at the Ecuadorian embassy and then I remember that at that time I advised this to my friend that she was studying at QUT and I was like you should look into that because she was doing a criminology degree and I told her about my experience and I was like, I'm pretty sure QT has that, like you need to look into it. Just like, I don't know, in Google type the word that you're looking for, internships, whatever, whatever. And after a month, then she came back to me, of course it was pre-COVID, and she told me that she found an internship for two months in Cambodia. So that's like my other like tip. Like universities usually have all those opportunities that you're looking for. You don't need sometimes to go even like beyond university. It's just there. Just take some time to do the proper research to find what you're looking for because there is people over there to help you find that. So yeah, don't miss those opportunities. Great opportunities. I love that. Don't miss the opportunities. <laughs> Ingrid, it's been absolutely delightful talking to you. I really appreciate you giving me this time and letting us know who you are and what's been great and what's been challenging. And I... Thanks so much for the work that you're doing to try and make the world just that little bit better. Well, Appreciate that. Thank you so that. much for the invitation, Jody. This podcast was hosted and produced by the excellent Dr. Jody Deeth. Editing by Kelsey Adams. That's me. Music by Poddington Bear. And this podcast was developed with support from the Queensland University of Technology. Thank you for listening.